Well, hello, everyone. My name is Kristen, and I'm a wine and spirits industry professional and a restaurant industry veteran. For the last 20 years or so, I've been deeply mixed up with all things booze-related. This podcast is your behind-the-scenes peek at how stars of our trade got their starts, the origins of brands, interviews with distillers, winemakers, bartenders, writers, and even a glimpse at what it takes to start a brand from scratch. So grab a glass or don't because you're probably driving and that shit is very illegal and enjoy. On this episode of The Booze Hustle, we talk to Charlie Nelson of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville, Tennessee. I gotta say, this is probably one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. Charlie is one of those people that has a million stories that just kind of unfold like layers of an onion. There's like another story under every layer. And I had such a great time talking to him. Charlie and his brother Andy have the most incredible story about stumbling upon a distillery that their family owned like three generations prior. Since that fateful day, they have released many award-winning whiskeys and are now in the process of expanding their Tennessee whiskey nationally this spring. I could have talked to Charlie all day and still never scratched the surface. It was tons of fun, and I really hope you enjoy. Oh, man. How is Nashville? Oh, Nashville's great. Um, It wasn't too long ago when from like October until March, Nashville was just dead. Now it's, it's just crazy busy all the time. And I mean, we're in a little bit of a lull right now, but... Uh, I think it's very short-lived, and and pretty soon um, people are going to be swarming the city again. All chaos all the time. Yeah, you guys are doing a lot of stuff with the distillery. I read you guys are building a new um, visitor center. There's stuff going on at Nashville Airport. Like Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery is going to straight up own Nashville pretty soon, and I am 100% on board with that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first step is to, you know, own Nashville, then Tennessee, then the U.S., then the world. Yeah, so, it's true. You know, it's totally it's true. Whiskey and uh, whiskey and music have been the hallmarks of Nashville for as long as anyone can remember. So that's great. So a lot of big things happening down there. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you because you've had kind of a recent transition in what your roles have been at the distillery. I know that you used to be um, really like outward facing sales in the market. Um, and whether it's because of COVID or the last couple of years, and also because of some role changes, your job's a little different now. Like what's that transition been like? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like riding a bike. Uh, so a couple years ago I was running the show here, um, as the, like, person who had the final say on on all the decisions locally um, and then started focusing a little bit more on specifically sales and marketing and going out into the market and launching both Greenbrier and Bell Mead in, in new markets all over the country. And over the last couple of years since I've been away and, and because of COVID, you know, we had a policy that was like, you know, if you don't need to be on site at the distillery, then don't be. Mm-hmm. And which is very different from the way that I used to be. It was like any second that I could be at the distillery, I I would be. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize the impact that that had on on just our team and and the vibe and the culture because it was one that my brother and I spent a lot of time and effort trying to build that culture. And so 
we sort of started losing some of um, that culture at our at our core. And, you know, we had some some leadership gaps, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. And it, it became apparent that we really needed to, to step back in and, and tighten our core and make sure that we have this solid foundation here at the distillery because, you know, everything really emanates from here. And if, if we're not running a tight ship here, then uh, how can we expect to have success in in markets outside of Nashville? So I'm I'm back in the sort of general manager role here and I'm I'm at the distillery pretty much every day as you might be able to hear some of the beeping yep. right outside. And I'm and sure everything. I'm sure your wife now enjoys splitting time with uh your your former wife, the distillery, and your new wife <laughs> yeah, sharing time. Exactly. She's like, wait a minute. This is not what I signed up for, but <laughs> well, that's crazy. Yeah. It's also hard to run a tight ship when it's a family business too. I mean, I can't, I can't speak, you know, to that specifically. But I know that if I had to run a business with my brother, we'd end up killing each other. Um, so, exactly. so what's that? What's that dynamic like? <laughs> that's that's definitely been one of the biggest challenges throughout the life of the business is is how to operate within the sort of family business structure and and dynamic because like my brother and I we are we're very similar Andy and I but we're also very different um mm-hmm. and it's great in some ways because like Andy is uh, a little bit more introverted and and more of just like a details oriented person and and just like he's looking at everything with a fine tooth comb and really diving deep into the minutia and sometimes it sounds like, really fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> and sometimes I get I'm the like picture that you're painting yeah. here <laughs> <laughs> like dang it man like who cares about the some of the small stuff let's talk about the big picture stuff and mm-hmm. i'm a little bit more outgoing and and um because he was the the head of production operations and I was the head of sales and marketing Perfect. sort of when we started. Yeah, so yeah. it like fit our personalities perfectly. That's great. So for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your story, you want to give me the quick uh I mean it's not a it's not a short story, but give me the quick history on Nelson Greenbrier Distillery and how you guys kind of brought this brand back or brought the family business back. You're right. It's it's not a short story, and I don't I don't have very many short stories, but um, I'll try and I'll try and keep it a little shorter than normal. Um, so the story really starts out with my great 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 grandfather, who born on the Fourth of July in Germany in 1835, came over to America uh, with nothing but the clothes on his back, and his his father actually had the family's fortune in gold sewn into his clothing. And uh, unfortunately, on the journey to America in 1850, the, the father ended up drowning and taking with him uh, to the bottom of the Atlantic the, the family's fortune and gold. Can I just say before you go on here, I think really you're you're setting yourself up for failure. If you're sewing gold into your clothes and you're getting on a <laughs> boat, I feel like I get it, but like, come on, like they couldn't guess what was going to happen. <laughs> I know whenever I get on a boat, I have to take all of the gold bars out of my suits. <laughs> Let me take this paperweights out of my pants real quick. <laughs> I don't think floaties are going to hold me up with that shit on me. Okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I know, golly. But, um, 
Yeah, so uh, the family arrives in New York with nothing but the clothes on their backs, and Charles made soap and candles for a couple years, moved to Cincinnati, became a butcher, then moved to Nashville, starts a wholesale grocery business where he was one of the first to bottle and sell whiskey rather than selling by the barrel or the jug, and um, expands, becomes one of the largest distilleries in the country, um, then uh, he died in 1891, and that's when his wife Louisa took over Louisa. as one of the only women to mm-hmm. run a distiller. Yeah, we're we love Louisa, very proud of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she ran it for the last 18 years till 1909. Statewide prohibition hit us and forced us to close our doors. And, um, you know, my brother Andy, I didn't know about the distillery until 15 years ago. Uh, we went to with our dad uh, to buy a bunch of meat from a butcher. Our dad had, had gone in with three of his buddies to buy a cow, which, you know, as you do. As you do, um, you buy that share of that cow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we're we're going to pick up our quarter of a cow and stop to fill up. And at the gas station, there's this historical marker that says Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, one mile east, Long Branch Road, Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. And so... We go on to the butcher, lives a mile east, shows us across the street, old barrel warehouse still standing. And brother and I walked over, checked it out. And then uh, he sent us to a nearby historical society where there were two original bottles. That's crazy. My name on them. That's insane. I mean, first of all, though, hold on a second. How did you guys not know about this? Like, is it like one of those things? Like, I have family from the South. Uh, I have family from Tennessee, but like Knoxville side. And there's a lot of like, family lore you know like they're hill people actual appalachia people you know and you hear a lot of things that you don't really believe so like did your family just not pass this down i feel like this is kind of a significant family historical you know bit of information it, did they just did you guys just think you had like a great grandfather that made gin in his bathtub or something like what the yeah hell? right 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 yeah i know i mean it's like i i don't fully understand i have i have theories um but like it, it's crazy. And the way that I think about it is that, like, I try and put myself in, in their shoes back then. And um, so Louisa is running the distillery for the last 18 years, from 1891 to 1909. And what's crazy is in 1894, there was a law uh, passed in Tennessee that was a step towards prohibition. And so... There, even starting in the you know pre nineteen hundred, you know alcohol, especially in Tennessee, was being looked at as an immoral business and an increasingly illegal one. So, like by the time nineteen oh nine hit, um, and by the way, also it's interesting to note that like you know the women's suffrage movement kind of went hand in hand with the temperance movement. Mm-hmm. So. Like, you could imagine Louisa getting a lot of pressure from her her peers and, um, you know, True. so, and then, like, when, when statewide prohibition hit and we had to shut down, the way I think of it is, like, you know, if, you're, if your cousin is the largest drug dealer in an area <laughs> or something, you know, you're probably not going to be going around, like, bragging about yeah. it. So it was like you know, shame, like family shame. A little like, bit, a little right. bit. 
And, you know, and so I think that just like as each generation came in, they just talked about it less and less. And I could see how that would happen. Yeah. All right. It's feasible. It's a theory. It's a, but like it's just a fucking distillery barrel house standing there. Like, I know, I know. I'm so like pissed. Nobody drove that, by it. Was like, what is right? that? I don't know. I know. I mean, a lot of people did drive by it. Actually, uh, there actually something kind of crazy. Uh, I have on my shelf. This is a gear shifter. I don't know if you can see this. Um, yeah. Oh wow. There's a. A truck ran into the barrel warehouse several years ago, and <laughs> I went to examine the damage, and I found the gear shifter from this old truck. Um, <laughs> but uh, after prohibition, the warehouse, the barrel warehouse, was used um, to cure tobacco. Um, mm. So, so people just didn't even really realize that it was a uh, a whiskey warehouse. Um, they thought of it as a, a tobacco warehouse. And so they cured dark fired tobacco there. That's crazy. You guys are yeah. covering all of your like slightly illegal substance bases in your family. <laughs> yeah. All, all, all of the vices, you know, uh, all uh, the vices in the yeah. family. hundred percent. Um, hey, so we I, like to have a good time, you know? Yes, you what do. I, I I'm fully on board with that. So I have a, a, a question. So we can kind of like jump to, you know, you and your brother kind of being like, holy crap, this was our families and starting it again. But I'm actually interested, like before that happened, like what were you doing before? And I have a, I have one thing. I did a little bit of homework on you. And is is it true that you speak French and Arabic? <laughs> is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I used to be pretty much totally fluent in French. I wouldn't say that I'm fluent in Arabic, um, but... Do you have a Tennessee accent in French? Like, I have to hear this. Okay, so first of all, I got to hear a Tennessee French accent. Let's hear it. What, what is there anything in particular that you want to hear? Just tell me I'm very beautiful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, gosh, it's been so long since I've even spoken, but... Um, Très vraiment belle. All right. Tellement belle. You got a little, a little twang in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I my 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 French has kind of started to to disappear a little bit. I was so I studied abroad in Paris um, in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied at the at La Sorbonne, um, mm-hmm. and I. Ended up getting a job actually bartending in Paris, which was uh, my first real uh, job bartending. Uh, before that, I had I had worked at a restaurant when I was like fourteen or fifteen, washing dishes. Which I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that was even legal. Um, no, but we all did that shit when we were. Yeah, I did that. I did the same. I was folding boxes of uh, pizza boxes in a basement for five dollars an hour when I was thirteen. So. Child yeah. labor laws really were not that yeah, strict right? back then. <laughs> no, but, but hey, we all, we you all know, did that. Gotta got a hustle, you know? That's um, right. Yeah. So you were in you were in France, you were bartending in Paris, which probably was very different than bartending in the US. I ha- probably could smoke a cigarette while you were pouring somebody wine. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I did. Um so yeah, my uh, we uh, we smoked a lot of Lucky Strikes. Actually, Ugh. we sold Lucky Strikes. Um, yeah, and 
And Lucky Strike gave us a bunch of free ashtrays and stuff. And the owner of the bar, um, his name was Jackie. Uh, He's kind of a sad character, actually. My training. Well, actually, let me go back. The way that I got the job was kind of crazy. I was just like walking down the street with some friends who were studying abroad in Italy. It's starting to pour down rain. We popped into this bar just to get out of the rain and uh, start talking to the manager, the bartender who was also the manager. And she said she was moving, she was getting married and moving to Australia soon. I was like, oh, well, do you need someone to uh, take over for you? She's like, uh, do you speak French? I was like, yeah, I mean, but I'm okay. Un peu. Un petit peu. Pourquoi pas? I smoke. There you go. Exactly. Um, and, uh, she's like, hold on, stay right there. She comes back or she said, have you ever bartended before? I said, well, I'm, I'm a fast learner. And she said, oh my God, stay right there. She leaves, comes back like two minutes later. She's like, how's Monday? Six o'clock. It's like, I'll be there. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how the world works? Like sometimes you just got to be in the right place for these crazy opportunities and i gotta i gotta say though you probably lucked out because bartending in europe is especially back then is different than bartending now i mean it's it's a lot less uh what's what's the word a lot less cocktail building ingredients probably and more opening beers and yeah i studied abroad too i was in um spain and barcelona barcelona sorry barcelona Barcelona. when were you there i was there in man 2007 2008 no 2008 2009 i don't know but we used to hang out in a a bar a chinese bar not that it was a chinese bar like it was chinese but the the family that owned it were from china and um it was just me and a bunch of like other english teachers drinking like estrellas and they're when we would ask for anything with liquor in it they would point to the dusty bottles like on the top shelf and be like you want that we'd be like no no. (laughs) (laughs) we'll stick to the beer we'll stick to the beer and the wine but yeah, so that's oh, what man. that bar was like then. But um, that's crazy. So you're bartending in Paris. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, there was a lot of like pouring beers and also like cures, you know, just like yep. the creme de cassis and white wine. Um, some folks who would always come in, this guy, a, a Welsh guy, they would always come in and have pastis. Mm. Um, I made a lot of mojitos. Random. You, yeah, and and a lot of uh, cosmopolitans. I guess Sex mm-hmm. in the City was big then. Oh yeah, but golly, there was a different. Every night was like a crazy story. We could do a whole podcast just of stories yeah. from your time in Europe, probably. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I have one other uh, question about your past that. I can't really tell if it's true or not. Okay, so true or false. Did you, I don't even know what this means, so I'm going to try. Did you have a grant to study Paleolithic rock in Europe? (laughs) Yeah. Paleolithic, like, (laughs) like time period rock? And please explain. Yes. So, you know, after I uh, studied abroad and, um, and traveled around a, a lot of Europe and, you know, I bartended still a little bit beyond that. Um, And then I had saved up a little bit of money from bartending and traveled around Southeast Asia for three months off of $3,000. And uh, 
And then I came back to the U.S. and I had a little bit of school left. And all I wanted to do was get back out and travel. So um, I had a philosophy professor that kind of inspired me to write this paper with the intention of uh, submitting it for uh, to win a grant, the Eugene Escalier grant. My proposal, I was saying, I was arguing that like, cave paintings and paleolithic rock art were sort of like the the cradle of of civilization and so i went to spain italy and france to study cave paintings and and rock art um not like rock and roll art like art on yeah, rocks. rocks and i actually crazy enough ended up meeting this guy emmanuel anati in in Italy, in Capo di Ponte, near Brescia, Italy. And he was like the world's foremost scholar on Paleolithic cave paintings and stuff. And so cool. uh, he, he couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak Italian, but we could both speak French. And so we communicated in French and he wanted me to study under him. And I was like, man, I, I actually just, dis- this was right after... Uh, we discovered our family's history in distilling, and I was like, I, I you know, I gotta, I gotta pursue this whiskey thing. So he, he wished me well. Wow, man, your path could have been very different if you guys hadn't yeah. found that distillery. Like, you might be sitting in a cave somewhere right now with the tiny little spectacles on and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> leading I a know. lecture with a bunch of like, you know, uh, people studying themselves. You'd be, you'd be maybe a little bit more dirty than you are right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. I don't know if that's possible, but. Well, uh, <laughs> well you never. So no. you're a wanderlust guy. Like you've got big yeah. wanderlust, um, yeah. which I think probably serves you well in taking the gospel of your whiskeys out and about in the world. I wonder if how has your, I guess, travel background really kind of influenced or helped your um, building of brand today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I would say that like everything before all of the travels and experience that I had and just like going around the world, meeting different people, learning about different cultures, I think uh, prepared me in the best way for this business because I think that this business especially, but really all businesses, the most important thing is relationships and communication. Mm-hmm. And what I see, uh, you know, in in what I do is not so much selling whiskey, but sharing a story and, and trying to inspire other people to share their stories. And mm-hmm. I, my hope is to bring people together and, you know, hopefully for other people to make connections over a, over a glass of whiskey, you know, it's a little bit easier that way. But, you know, I, I, I learned while I was traveling that like, we're all the same. We're human beings and we're all like 99.99999% the same. And that's like 0.01% that we have difference that we chop up in a million different ways. But like, we all want and need the, or we all need the same things. And, you know, whether you're living in Nashville, Tennessee, or Alaska, or Paris, France, or, you know, in Vientiane, Laos, or something, you know, 
we all need nourishment and and shelter and love. And Mm -hmm. I think when we start to realize that we are all the same, I think then it's, it's easier to connect on a human level and, and, you know, learn about what people truly need and, and want to, to live and survive and thrive. And so that has been a huge help. And also just like hearing so many people's different perspectives and stories um, and how powerful people's stories are, because I, I think that uh, stories are essentially what build and create myths and, and create and sustain cultures as well. Yeah. Honestly, the best education is travel. I, I, I can't stress 100%. that enough. Honestly, like my kids, so I have two kids, they're very young now, but yeah, we have this thing in our house where we're just like, if you want to be an academic, cool, you better get some good grades because I ain't paying to send you to college when you're yeah. uh, 17, if you're not going to take it seriously or 18. If anything, we want them to work for two years in a restaurant, learn how to be a decent human being, learn a work ethic, and then get the hell out of here in this like bubble that we live in go see the fucking world and learn exactly what you just said that like literally we all need the same things. It really helps you kind of meet people where they are and see that, wow, it's not just what I want. It's this collective. We're all on this, you know, we're all on this crazy ride together, you know? Yeah. I love, I love what you said. Cause like, I, I, I think uh, everybody should do three things, you know, work in a restaurant yep. for yeah at least one or two years travel abroad and try and learn a foreign language. Yes. That's the most humbling thing to do too, is when you're an adult learning another language is really hard. So like I, man, I, my Spanish is terrible, but, um, I, uh, I try and I, I understand from working in restaurants for a long time. So when we go to, you know, like Central America or Mexico, like I can communicate and I can understand. Um, my husband's always like, you're you're doing great. I mean, he doesn't know how terrible I sound because he doesn't understand Spanish at all. Yeah. But it's humbling. But you got to do it. You got to get out of your comfort zone. That's the humbling yeah. thing to do, truly. And you're less For of an sure. asshole. How we, we noticed the craziest thing. We were just traveling. Somebody said this thing to me. It's amazing how people in this country treat um, people that immigrate here like less than when really... Those are like the smartest people of where they're from. They move somewhere that they don't speak a language. They now speak more languages than most Americans and they're hustling their asses off. Like, oh right. no, it is the other way around, sir. <laughs> like, uh, so uh, a, a friend of mine is a musician. His name is, well, actually he's kind of retired from music, I think, and is now doing real estate in LA. And, uh, but his, his name's Johnny Fritz, but he uh, his stage name was Johnny Corndog, and um, <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> what a I was, stupid I was, name! <laughs> it's hilarious, and uh, <laughs> but his uh, a song that he wrote was called like "Keep Your Body Happy Through Exercise," <laughs> and and the last line of it is like, "And understand that immigrants have the hardest lives." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it just reminded me of that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, well, um, all right. So I had a couple other questions for you. Uh, yeah. Do you have any like whiskey industry crushes or anyone that you look up to as a mentor? Um, 
I'm a big fan of like Drew Coolsveen from Willet. Uh, he and and Preston Van Winkle were actually the first two guys that I really met in this industry, and we're all about the same age. So um, that was that was really cool. Um, and how does how such... does Preston go to any bar in America though without like he has to keep his I cards know. in his pocket, right? Like right. the minute he takes it, it, like introduces himself, people are like, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. So like, annoying. How could I get a bottle of Pappy? Oh, like, that would drive yeah, me nuts. Got, yeah. Like Jimmy Russell. Um, I've met him several times and I just like, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I, I got to spend like a, a weekend um, at a conference with his grandson, Bruce Russell, who... It's just great. I, I really enjoyed hanging out with him. But like everybody in this industry, especially that's been around for a long time, like they're all so humble and like approachable and just, you know, and welcoming and and helpful. And it's just it's such an awesome uh, community of of folks. And it's just tight knit and everybody Everybody wants to help one another out and, and, um, you know, it's not necessarily like that on the marketing and sales side, but, um, yeah. Um, I always, I always shit on marketing and sales and I can do that because I work in sales. So I can say that like (laughs) oftentimes nine times out of 10, if somebody is being pretentious or not nice to you, it's not growers, it's not the distillers, it's not the people in viticulture. It's always the people in marketing and sales, the people that are like, making it complicated and it yeah. makes me crazy. It, yeah. drives, it drives me nuts. <laughs> like everyone just calm down. All right. We're all just yeah. trying to get drunk. Everyone calm down about the process. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, I can't wait to come down and see you guys. Hopefully this summer. Yeah. Um, when's your tasting room or the visitor center going to be open? We're hoping around the end of this year. So like December and you know, we're okay. going to be building out like a big bar and restaurant and, you know, increasing the number of tasting rooms and, you know, have our event space will be totally awesome. Um, and a little you know more office space and like a VIP hang room. Cool. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm, that's awesome. I'm so excited. We're hoping to be able to have an event by Revel, which is our party celebrating the repeal of Prohibition on December 5th. That's awesome. In the meantime, you guys have a regular tasting room that's still open, right? Yep. Still awesome. open uh, every day, seven days a week. Well, that's exciting. So I know that you guys have big things planned right now. You're launching the Tennessee whiskey in all of the remaining states that aren't currently selling it. So that's happening this spring. So yep. ten- Nelson Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, uh, one of the original Tennessee whiskeys, right? The yeah. original Tennessee yeah. whiskey. The, ori- the Greenbrier, the original yeah. Tennessee whiskey. It'll Greenbrier in- is growing. It'll be in all fifty states. That's awesome. Well, congratulations yeah. on that, man. That's quite an achievement. Um, you. And you guys are doing awesome things. I really can't wait to come down and see you. So. Oh. Um- I didn't say anything in Arabic, did I? Can you say uh, you are very beautiful? <laughs> uh, yes. Inti kulish helwe. That's awesome. Where did you learn Arabic and why? That's awesome. Well, my last full-time job was helping teach Iraqi Arabic language and culture to soldiers before going to Iraq through a software program. And I became like a voice actor as, posing as a 
as an American soldier. Yeah, so I was Arif Lopez, um, <laughs> and I I had to, you know, say things like which is like, don't worry, we're here to help you. Wow. And, you have lived um, many lives, Charlie. Yeah. I'm I'm continuously oppressed, impressed by the shit that comes out of your mouth. <laughs> Wait, what what else haven't you done at this point? Like the, the list uh, is incredible. <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot left to do. I mean, gotta launch Greenbrier in all fifty states. Yep. <laughs> and you know what? In a hundred years from now, some great, great, great grandson of yours is gonna be telling stories about you. Uh, and it's going to be more colorful than the story about your great, great, great grandfather drowning because of gold in his pockets. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll be about like going to bringing whiskey to Mars or something. Hell yeah, man. Visitor Center <laughs> on Mars 2050? Yeah. Are we going to yeah, be around sure. then? We'll be around. We'll be really old. Why though. not? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, you're the best. Thank you so you're much for chatting. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.